Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Good and Pastor Brett Bow and Pastor Adam Osher continue their discussion on Article 26 of the Augsburg Confession. Being Lutheran is sponsored by the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. Whatever your vocation is, start here, go anywhere, grounded in God's Word. Welcome to the Being Lutheran Podcast. I am Pastor Brett Bow, and I'm joined by... Pastor Jason Goodham. And Pastor Adam Osier. All right, we're back for part two of our discussion of Augsburg Confession, Article 26, and Apology. We made it yeah. all the way through that first episode. I didn't even use my go-to joke for this, that we were just going to give grill recipes. Yes. Uh. You know, <laughs> we're just going to go around and say, well, like yeah. for burgers, what I like to do is take two-thirds of a mix of ground beef and a, mi- a third of a mix of ground pork, and you mix it together with dried onions and cumin powder and garlic powder and onion salt. You know, that would have gone way better if you would have tried to do that in the voice of Julia Child. (laughs) (laughs) Onion powder. I'll try it later. It's delightful. That was terrible. (laughs) Way better than what I would do. It was terrible. Thanks. Uh, That sounded like a real recipe, though, Jason. It sounded like a joke. No, that's my real recipe. That sounded convincing. The the, the two keys, because people put chopped onions in their burgers, Mm -hmm. but it's too wet. And so you put the dried onions in and you supplement the dried onions that, you know, like from the shaker, you supplement the dried onions with onion salt Interesting. so that you get the flavor and the salt. Yeah. Do you put egg in there for uh, a binder? No. no, you don't need to, with, with the pork and the beef together, you don't need to bind it. You don't need the binder. All right. Well, you can get all your uh, culinary <laughs> needs here at uh, Being Lutheran. <laughs> Fun fact, I am so yeah. pathetic when it comes to food. I used to listen to cooking show podcasts. Wow. It's pretty wow. awful trying to imagine, and you know, you hear the sizzling in the background and them narrating what they're doing. Yeah. Just I, get angrier and angrier. <laughs> yeah, Watch like, Jason. Why I am want, I so hungry? I want that. <laughs> Uh, Well, we are talking about the distinction of meats, um, and I think we did get filet fish thrown into last episode, but if not... And I didn't even sing the McDonald's commercial. Okay, thank you Billy Bass. Thank you very much. Put that in your heads, though. Yeah, right. (laughs) And Uh, I can do that voice. But anyway, talking about... We we kind of ventured down the realm of comparing um, a comparison between the gospel and tradition and and Mm -hmm. how it always usurps it. We never got to actually... Melanchthon's breakdown in this article of why it's a threat, which is just, it's a succinct, straightforward list that really works well as a way of saying, is this happening in my own congregation? Yeah. Yeah. And the the first one was uh, talking about, uh, and we kind of touched on this a little bit last week, but uh, just obscuring the gospel. Yeah, so if it takes the place where you know, anything that you're doing privately as a Christian or publicly or anything that causes you to uh, deprecate another brother or sister in Christ, that is obscuring the gospel. Again, the, what we said last week was that anything that anchors your identity in your behavior rather than the gospel, uh, than the completed work of Jesus Christ, is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let me just ask this, just in following up with that, um, we're all pastors, um, you know, Adam, not necessarily serving in, in the role of a pastor right now. Um, but the priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers. Well, I guess... <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Yeah. I'm, uh, I got your back, Adam. You're the pastor of the students here. Uh, but anyhow, um, just thinking of, you know, as a pastor, maybe you discover something in your congregation where you feel like it might be obscuring the gospel. Um, 
you know, we have listeners that aren't pastors that maybe they see something in their congregation where it's it's maybe a tradition that's become, you know, a sacred cow. Yeah, a sacred cow. Any any uh, pastoral counsel for us to kill the sacred cows? Well, since I'm the only non-pastor at the table here, <laughs> um, one of the things that stood out to me, and I really struggled with this, was. Um, having patriotic services. So during the special holidays, the United States holidays like 4th of July, um, the Memorial Day holidays or Veterans Day, we always had at our church and, and well, actually both churches I served, um, you know, had special emphasis that day on, on the American tradition, right? Uh, we'd sing the Star Spangled Banner and Pledge there is reference. Yeah. yeah. And there's reference there to the gospel or to, to the, uh, at least to, to Christ in the Star Spangled Banner fourth verse, I think. Um, oh, thus be it error. No one ever the, even gets to the second when, verse. Though. When the free man shall stand between their love homes and the war's desolation and, um, Oh, what's the rest of the word? Yeah. Anyway, there's a reference to get, see, that's how bad it is. What I'm just doing right now is exactly the example of, you know, it's, it's very American. It makes you feel, and there's a, a place in our culture to be patriotic. Yes. I think there's a place in our culture to be absolutely grateful and even a place in the church to be grateful for those who've given their lives for us to serve. But the problem with it is, is when it becomes the emphasis of those weeks, I want to have a church service that I can invite somebody into from uh, Iran, a Christian from Iran who would like to come and worship with us and they not be confused and, and um, you know, not, not even necessarily bored, but distracted from the gospel. I don't want it to become a distraction for them. And that was always something that really was hard for me. And I say that with complete and utter deference and respect to those who've served uh, our country and, and those who are, are fighting for our country and service in various ways. But it's just one of those things I think can distract from the gospel. Yeah, and uh, I think bringing in patriotic services is, is a really excellent point of entry for yeah. our modern context with what was going on 500 years ago yeah. in the Augsburg Confession, because you're absolutely right. There is uh, not everything that happens in the church has to be a reflex back to white Christian nationalism, right? So that is a problem, and and you you have these people, especially on social media and things, trying to purify the church, have absolutely white, you know, churches that also are entirely patriotic, right? So I, I think the term we've given it on the podcast is patriotic American Christianity, where America is the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy, uh, that you know, um, <laughs> America is going to be the location of Christ's seat of government in the millennium. And, White and, Bible characters. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So uh, being grateful for the religious freedom we still have in this country, based on the price people paid in foreign wars over the last hundred years or more, uh, that there's a place for that. Uh, I'm grateful to the service of my fellow Americans who have served in the armed forces that even in today's partisan divided culture, I can go to church on Sunday morning and preach a sermon without fear. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for that. And even as a Christian, uh, the doctrine of vocation allows mm -hmm. me to live my life as a citizen of the United States and be proud that I'm an American. Thanks, Lee Greenwood. <laughs> but that also means I allow for a Christian to be proud of their Iranian heritage mm -hmm. or their Zimbabwean heritage, mm -hmm. 
Good or, choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, just thinking of that, right? And, yeah. And, and, yeah. and we would have probably, because of several complex issues, way less problem with Australians doing that than, mm-hmm. than something. But, but that's the reality behind it. Mm-hmm. Now, confusing that with the gospel is a problem. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And that was what's going on here. Right. Yeah. And I guess my question was, you know, in issues like that, how do you... Uh, do you emphasize the gospel more? Do you, you know, maybe there's a, a bit of contextual, depends on your situation. Um, yeah. yeah. Depends on your situation. There's a direct way to do it and an indirect way yeah. to do it. For, you, you can go full scorched earth and say, this is wrong, we're going to change it, <laughs> right? And sometimes that's necessary. Rarely ever is that fruitful. Right. You know, uh, now it might get to the point where there is bad theology or bad practice ingrained in your congregation, so people need to be offended. And if you do that, you do that prayerfully and you do that with repentance because it is just as likely that you are inserting your own sinful pride mm-hmm. in your righteous indignation yeah. as other people's sins that you're trying to correct. And mm-hmm. so you handle that with care. The other thing is, you know, we have to realize that by and large in American Christian context, regardless of denomination, that we have refused to catechize our people, mm-hmm. that we do what we do simply because we've always done it that way. And mm-hmm. Lutherans do this and Presbyterians do this, and Roman Catholics do this, and Baptists do this, and and non-denom Baptists do this, and every other flavor of Baptist does this too, right? (laughs) Uh, And so if the the conclusion you come to is that something needs to change, but it exists in the first place because there hasn't been catechesis, then what you do is you catechize. And then when it comes to the point of change, you appeal to the catechesis that has been going on in the congregation say, is this really consistent with what we believe Mm -hmm. or even what we say we believe about something? And that is the best way to assault tradition that has become a sacred cow. Mm. Yeah, good. Yeah, there's a lot lot to consider there. I mean, maybe we should move on to the next part here, but... uh, I, th- I think it's interesting just how, you know, as Melanchthon fleshes this out, not only can the gospel be obscured, but also the commandments. The law can be obscured. The law, the law can be obscured. It's remarkable how intertwined those two doctrines are. It's yeah. almost like law and gospel should be a thing, right? That's right. Uh, but the law is obscured because we are just terrific at inventing our own laws. <laughs> and, and, and this is Phariseeism 101, right? Yeah. So the Pharisees put a hedge of protection. I think that's the actual Jewish term. They put mm-hmm. a hedge of protection around the law. The Mishnah? Yeah. Are you talking about the Mishnah? Yeah. And I think they refer to it as a hedge, right? Mm-hmm. They, they put a hedge around it so they don't even come close to breaking the law. That was the idea behind it. In, in building in for yourself safeguards... Uh, to avoid temptation, there, there's some wisdom to it, although yeah. that that in public society has been mocked a little bit in, <laughs> in you know last few years. But again, it, that comes back to freedom. Yeah, Christian right? freedom. Christian, yeah. Freedom. Christian freedom. We we are free to build a hedge, but the second we think that that hedge is somehow gaining us ground before yeah. the eyes of God, that's when yeah. it becomes our issue. Yeah, and it also can become you know such an obsession that hedge that we've built that it it take you know it takes our eyes or it takes our focus off off Jesus. And that's also a major problem. I think that's where, yeah. where you're going with this. Well, I interrupted. But. No, you're great. No, it's when the hedge turns into tablets of stone, 
That's yeah. what becomes the problem. And so Jesus' entire battle with the Pharisees in the Gospels rolls back to what you guys were doing to protect the law has now become the law, and it is a needless burden on the people. You know, And so he says, you hypocrites, you tithe mint and cumin and dill. You, 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 go, to your, you go to Whole Foods, <laughs> and you buy your spices, and you take 10% of them, and you give it back to the church, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, and that's righteousness injustice, you know, for the oppressed. And that's what he's getting after. We will always replace God's law with a law we d- deem ourselves to be better at. And and one we can keep. Yeah, exactly. We want we want a cookie cutter sense of law. If, if my law, if I wrote a, a law unto myself, I'm not going to murder my neighbor. Uh, I'm not going to eat um, oysters. On Tuesdays, I, I can keep those laws. I, I'd be very good at that law. But the problem is, is that we don't have that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that's not what Scripture is. When we look at the law, the law is meant to be unkeepable. I mean, it it, it should show us as as unkeep. We should be shown in the law that the law is unkeepable. No, is that well, a word? Unkeepable. We'll go with it. Yeah, we'll, we know it's what you mean. It, yeah. Yeah. And it's not all invented. Our initial reaction to this kind of thing is to to kind of believe, well, Pharisees and the legalists take the law too seriously. And in reality, the opposite is true, is that they're not taking the law seriously enough because what you, the law is untouchable. Huh, yeah. and, and the point to what we're doing is when we make the law something that is achievable or almost achievable, that means we completely miss the point. The law is there to kill us. Mm-hmm. It is there to put us to death. It is there to terrify us. Now, that isn't the ultimate act of God. That is not the design of the law. It does it, but that's not the telos. Mm-hmm. The telos is then we turn to God and cry out for mercy. The law is always meant to bring about repentance. And, and this is one of those hindering both the gospel and the law yeah. is how do these ceremonies that become laws uh, bring about repentance? And oftentimes they don't because I can do it. I, I can, for 40 days, I cannot eat beef on Friday. You know, I'll hate every second of it and I'll <laughs> grumble and complain, but I can do it. It's possible, which means it doesn't, I don't need to repent if I can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem mm-hmm. yeah. with these traditions. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. that and then the third uh, objection is just the danger to consciences. And, you know, once again, there's that word that pops up in, in the book of Concord. Burden. Uh, just bur- yeah. Burden conscience. Uh, unburdening conscience. Yep. And, and so the idea behind this goes to what you read last week, Brett, when you read the first three lines yep. of this yep. article, is that it gets to the point where the church has invented so many ceremonies and has invented so many regulations that a person becomes paralyzed as what is necessary for me to observe. And so if if I have in, in a earnest, sincere, and even pious practice given up soda for Lent, but I hear someone else has not only given up soda, they've given up coffee, and they've determined to memorize the book of First Timothy during Lent. Will that burden my conscience because of what this other person is doing? And again, you're comparing yourself to someone else instead of letting Christ stand in your place. Now, memorizing the book of First Timothy is good. And we, we talked, you know, at length last week about the value of denying ourselves something for the sake of repentance and for the sake of thinking about Jesus' sacrificial work and, and all of that. We, we talked about it. But 
what do we do? You know, if my church has two things on Monday and one thing on Tuesday and something all day on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday evening and Saturday morning men's prayer breakfast and then early morning service, Bible study, mid-morning service, uh, youth group, and all of this put together, uh, and I base my piety on being able to attend it all, uh, I'm going to burn myself out, yeah. and the church is going to be res- responsible for me not being able to fulfill my vocations in other parts of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, yeah, that's that whole burden of conscience thing. It all comes back to: Am I being distracted from Jesus? Is this is this causing me to look more inward or more outward? And it, 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 I said that last week. I said it again. It just keeps coming back to that. This whole idea: if if uh, I'm I'm seeing these things, and I, we've all seen it, haven't we? Yep. We've all seen this in in church, like these. Uh, I'm not a good enough Christian. You guys have seen people come in your office, right? Oh, yep. uh, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I'm not a good enough Christian, and you find them comparing themselves to other Christians instead of looking to Christ to be their substitute, like you said, Jason. Uh, that's a probably when you say it like that, and we say it in those terms, and if you really expand the definition of what this is, that's a huge aspect of pastoral counseling that has been part yep. of my ministry, mm-hmm. you know, is, is this whole idea, am I doing enough? And it all comes back to am I, am I, am I, am I, instead of is Christ, is Christ, is Christ. And especially when you're ministering to the elderly who are preparing to draw, to die. Mm. That is where that temptation seems to be most prominent, yeah. that, that have I done enough? Have I lived a good Christian life? And when wherever you're at, however old you're at, whatever stage of your Christian life you're at, if the question, the prevalent question in your mind is, "Have I done enough?" Mm-hmm. God's answer to you is repent and hear the gospel. Yeah. Well, my my answer is this, well, and I've had that many times. At you know, one church I was at, a number of elderly people. I was in this conversation a lot. I don't think I've done enough, Pastor. Or have I done enough, Pastor? Nope. <laughs> no, no, you haven't. And let me tell you why that is okay. Yeah. <laughs> let me tell you why that's okay. And was Jesus lying when he said it, yeah, it is yeah, finished? Yeah, that's yeah. one of my favorite lines too. Or maybe, maybe he was kidding when he said it was finished. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's, let's wrap up this discussion here. I, I know we wanted to get to uh, talking, you know, just in, in light of all these things, you know, just a prescriptive versus descriptive um yeah, so and how that relates to this. We want to say a little word on tradition versus superstition. Yeah. And, and there always needs to be a good reason for a tradition. You know, we've always done it this way. It's like the worst possible reason, but it is a reason. <laughs> but uh, sometimes we, we think what we see in Scripture is instruction when it's really just telling us what happened. Yeah. And, and in an, an analyzing tradition... A good thing to think about is first find the scriptural source, find where the word of God might uh, promote this behavior or, or put this forward, and then ask yourself, is this a description of what happened or it is a prescription for what should happen? Mm-hmm. And in doing that, um, you especially, uh, for whatever reason, when this happens in the Old Testament especially, you get around a lot of weirdness with trying to make our lives look like 
Orthodox Jews of the second millennia BC. My favorite is Ezekiel 4-9 bread. And I think I've shared yeah, that yeah. on the episode <laughs> before, right? You got all these things. So we got to bake bread just like that because that's God's designed bread. And then they don't read through the whole rest of the chapter where he's supposed to cook it on human dung, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, but we do that. We see that Ezekiel 4-9 bread because this is how God did it. The Daniel diet, the this, the that. Yeah, I was going to bring up the Daniel yeah. diet. Yeah. The prayer of Jabez. Yeah. yeah. Describing Jabez's prayer. There's no sense in scripture that that prayer is to be emulated. Right. It's just what Jabez did at the time, right? And I, I mean, I wonder if we reviewed Christian fads of the last 30 years, how many we could distill down <laughs> to on some level is a matter of confusing description versus prescription. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. And, you know, like over and over and over this happens. And when, when you confuse those two, then uh, tradition becomes a matter of superstition. Mm-hmm. That I have to do something in this way, in this manner, or it doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. And, and that end result, or it doesn't stick, means that somehow my performance matters. My behavior is the talisman. We've yeah. talked about yeah, talisman yeah, before, talisman. too. Yeah, right. It, it, or my behavior is all of a sudden that talisman, that I do this, I do that. And it does become superstitious. Yeah. One of the quotes that I came across in this as I was, as I was preparing... Um, and it's uh, from a studies in the Lutheran Confession by Albeck. But he says, the usages or the, the traditions of the church must aid and express faith rather than become a substitute for it. Mm-hmm. So when our actions and when our, you know, when our behaviors are, are you know, there to express faith, to, to cause us to remember certain things about Christ and his work for us, those things can be good and are good. But as soon as they become, well, we do these things, that again, it just keeps coming back to that same circle. Is it, is it about me or is it about Jesus? Is it about me or is it about Jesus? All the things, you know, I was at a very traditional church and I've shared that before and all of the practices at that church, I really appreciated because I saw the rich, the value in it, the, the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of the colors of the pyramids and different things and the, the, the robes and the, the different reasons for those things that wasn't superstition that I'm lucky if I put on my cross necklace, why am I doing, why, why am I doing that for the service? Why am I, why do I wear a stole? What does this robe mean? Why is it a robe and not a, you know, jumpsuit? Why, you know, all of those different things, all those different questions should point to <laughs> Wouldn't it kind of be fun to have a pastoral just, clergy jumpsuit? I, I don't know what you said that in an image of MC Hammer just yes, flashed yeah, in right. my head. Wasn't he a pastor? <laughs> he might be a pastor, yeah. but parachute pants just yeah. somehow jumpsuit turned into parachute. Pants. Exactly. But, but why all these things? In a, in, in a picture, what does it point us to? It points us to the robe of righteousness that's we found yep. in Christ, and that is something that we are to be reminding the people of. We are to remind ourselves of. It should point us to faith. But as soon as that becomes, well, I'm only going to church where they wear robes. Then all of a sudden, we have to question our motives. It changes things. I have had someone say to a member of my church, and and again, uh, I am a pastor of a very low church, Lutheran church, as far as the whole Lutheran spectrum is concerned. When it comes to the AFLC, we're much more formal than most, right? (laughs) Yeah. But because of the formality of our service, I have had someone say to one of my members that they couldn't attend my church because they can't feel the spirit moving. You know, and it's it's a stunning thing to hear that someone is so affected by one thing that they're refusing to hear scripture or allow space for the spirit to move, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable making that criticism in that direction, right? Mm-hmm. But as we wrap this up, I think a great 
point of intersect for us to consider as we have Lutherans from all different traditions and even non-Lutherans listening is, is people who make the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. It is an excellent way to describe Christian freedom. Now, uh, in a Missouri Synod divine service, there are appropriate places for the entire congregation to make the sign of the cross. So like if you pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, the petition that says, deliver us from evil, you make the sign of the cross. When you uh, do the Apostles' Creed, uh, at the end of the third uh, article, there's a time to make the sign of the cross. When you hear the Trinitarian invocation, you make the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. And and that's a habitual ritual thing, and there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, for me, when I make the sign of the cross, I've also developed the habit that I say to myself, I am baptized mm-hmm. in my head when I do it. Uh, and I've been in a conversation, well, what if uh, that's a distraction to me? And you said, well, then don't make the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not going to harm you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also have to you know, investigate why you're offended by it. Yeah, and go down. There, there are two ends of a spectrum, and both are extreme in their own right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen. Well, well, thanks. I think that's a good place to spot to stop here, and uh, we'll jump into our Bible studies in the next couple episodes. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Also, invite a friend to check us out on Spotify and iTunes. Please consider attending Christmas at FLBC, December 2nd through the 4th, featuring performances by the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary Choirs, as well as the Symphonic Wind Ensemble. Register for free or find live stream information on our website at flbc.edu slash Christmas. God bless you and have a great week.